All right, well, what's up, church family? How are we doing today? It's good to be with you all. And uh, I just want to say hello to all of our campuses, anybody tuning in online. So glad to have you today as we continue on in this message series with a funny name called Modnik, which is all about this backwards, upside down, countercultural, radically different kingdom of God that Jesus just couldn't stop talking about. In fact, he brings it up in conversation and in teaching 126 times in the four gospels. And he was always using word pictures and analogies to help us to understand and visualize it. And so Jesus would say things like the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field or the kingdom of God is like seeds on a path or the kingdom of God is like a wedding party. And he did that so that we could visualize and understand not only the, the kingdom that our heavenly father wants us to inherit one day, but the kingdom of God that our father wants us to experience like even right now. In fact, one time Jesus prayed this prayer in Matthew chapter 6. He's praying to God the Father and he says, May your kingdom come soon and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's a very different prayer than God, please save us so that we can go to heaven one day when we die. That's a God, would you bring a little bit of what's going on up there down here so that we could begin to experience elements and traces of your kingdom now. God, in this crazy world full of abuse and violence and division and hatred, God, would you bring your kingdom of compassion and joy and love and kindness. And God, may you bring it through us. But it's a backwards kind of a kingdom. It doesn't come necessarily naturally to us. And so what we've been doing is looking at each of the letters in this word, Modnik, which is basically kingdom spelled backwards, to try to help us to understand some of the elements of this kingdom. And today we, we hit the letter G, which just simply stands for generosity flows. And residents of the kingdom of God, like we, we don't stockpile or hoard our stuff. Instead, generosity flows through us, or at least it should flow through us, like a river. In fact, we like experience a rush when we give. Jesus said one time, he goes, hey man, it's a whole lot more fun to give yourself away than it is to always be on the receiving end of things. But in our earthly kingdom, generosity doesn't, isn't necessarily the norm. And it can be difficult for us to give ourselves away. But generosity, you've ever noticed this? Whenever you see someone who's really generous, it just stands out. Uh, several years ago, my wife, Lindsay, and I, we went out with another couple, and uh, we had dinner, and then we went and played duck pin bowling down at Fountain Square right after. And uh, this couple, they were really generous. They, like, offered to come pick us up so we wouldn't have to drive. And as soon as we get in the car, like, he's just really generous with his encouragement, and she was really generous with compliments. And, and then it continued on into dinner. Like, when the waiter brought the bill, he reached for it, and he said, no, it's on us tonight. And I'm like, no, you don't have to do that. And he's like, no, we really want to. And so we go to the duck pin bowling place and they're standing in front of us as a couple. And I just thought that they were going to pay for themselves and then we would step up and pay for ourselves. But he, he paid for all four of us. And I was like, man, you're embarrassing me. Like, you really don't need to do this. And he goes, Aaron, no, we really want to. And it didn't end there. Like, as we're playing uh, the duck pin bowling, there's a group right next to us. And they're wrapping things up. And one of the guys in the group, he orders a pitcher of beer, pulls, pours himself a glass, takes one sip, and then they all leave. And they didn't pay for it. And so the waiter comes over to us and he says, uh, were you guys with that group? And I could see where this is going. Like I knew that the waiter was going to try to put that on our bill. And so I'm 
I'm ready to power up. Right, I've got my defense at the ready, and I don't do this often, but I was even ready to break the glass and pull the pastor card <laughs> and be like, you can't make me pay for a pitcher of beer. I'm a man of the cloth, and uh, <laughs> God frowns upon such things, especially domestic. And so I, uh, <laughs> and right then, our friends, they, they, they looked at the waiter and they said, oh, man, that's, that's terrible. You know what? Just put it on our bill. We'll take care of it. No big deal. And the waiter was like, really? And I was like, really? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, man, really. It's no big deal. And here's what it did is it disarmed the whole situation. The waiter said, oh, man, you don't need to do that. Don't worry about it. Man, in our world of self-preservation and always looking out for ourselves, like, when you see generosity with like no strings attached, there's something about that that just stands out in every way. And when you're generous with your time and your efforts and your encouragement and your very life, man, that's the mark of someone who's just radically different. They're just living by a different set of values and standards. It should be one of the defining characteristics of someone who is a resident of God's backward kingdom. But oftentimes it isn't. You know, statistically speaking, Christians aren't necessarily any more generous than the rest of the world. I've spoken to a lot of waiters and waitresses in our church, and they say, honestly, we really don't like to work the Sunday afternoon crowd because they're hard to please and they're not very generous tippers. I'd love to be able to stand up here today as your pastor and just say, listen, like I've got generosity figured out. Like I, it just comes easily and naturally and joyfully to me, but... Uh, that, that wouldn't be true. I'd love to be able to tell you that my days of selfishness and stinginess are like long gone. Like it used to be a problem for me like way back. Like in the 1990s. <laughs> I was a very selfish individual. But I've come such a long way. And I've grown to be such a super Christian. And so now today I'm going to bless you by sharing with you what I've learned. So that you too can be like me. That, that just wouldn't be true. If I'm going to be honest with you, I still struggle with this. There are days when I wonder and I worry if I'll make enough and if I'll have enough and if I'll be enough. Here's the deal. Like, I want to be generous. I really do. And you know what I think I know about you is I think you want to be generous too. I think we all do. I think we all have enough head knowledge to know that's a good thing. And I've preached dozens and dozens of sermons on this topic from this stage. And I know all the Bible passages and I believe it. And yet I want to be generous and I want to be a part of what God's doing in the world. And yet life gets in the way. That's what happens. And so I make the decision to be generous. And then right at the exact same week, the transmission goes out on both cars. Right, right in the exact same week that I want to be generous, then the kids go back to school and they need new clothes. Right when I want to be generous, then they come out with a new iPhone and I lose my mind. I'm like, oh, I can have it. Yeah. Got three cameras. And, uh, and I bet I'm not the only one. I bet that my word's connected to somebody today. You know what? This guy named Paul writes to a group of people that are really not so different than you and me. I think that we oftentimes fail to remember that much of the New Testament were just letters written to regular people like you and me trying to make a living. And Paul writes to this group of people that I'm sure they had some anxiety about finances and they were just trying to provide. They weren't trying to necessarily get filthy rich, just trying to get by. They're trying to save up to put it down on a house. They, they're trying to keep up with the camel payments. They, I'm sure, wanted to take the occasional family vacation to Disney over Jerusalem or something. I don't know. 
But they're just like you and me. And Paul writes to them and he says these really powerful words. He says it in 2 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 6. He says, remember this. In other words, this isn't brand new information. This is review. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. That just makes sense. But then he says this. You must each decide. In other words, this is a very personal matter. You must decide in your heart how much to give. In other words, this is a matter of the heart. And don't give reluctantly. What's that look like? Well, I guess if I gotta. I guess if you're gonna put a, uh, that on me, then I guess I will. He goes, don't give that way. Like, don't give reluctantly. But, and don't give in response to pressure. What's that look like? It's like, well, if you're going to twist my arm, if you're going to give me a high emotional appeal, think sweaty TV preacher, all right? Somebody's going to manipulate the emotions trying to get money out of you. Because I mean, don't give reluctantly. Don't give in response to somebody else's pressure. Why? For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Now, here's the question I have. Why? Why does God care how we give? Nobody else does. Think about this for a minute. Think about all the people that you owe money to or that you pay. So think about the utility companies, the bank, the, uh, the, the service person. And uh, how many of you have ever had anybody sit down with you and say, say, say look, uh, we just want you right now today to uh, decide in your heart how much you'll pay. And uh, we just don't want you to give reluctantly. We don't want you to feel pressured into this. In fact, at the end of the day, we just want you to walk out of here today knowing that you've paid cheerfully. Nobody does that. Because they don't care. As long as they get the amount that is owed to them, they don't really care how you gave it, just as long as you gave it. And here God says, listen, I don't need your cash to pay my bills. So I, I don't want you to give reluctantly or in response to pressure. Here's what I care about. I care about your character. I care about your heart. And I want you to give cheerfully because that is a reflection of your heart. And then Paul finishes it up in verse 8, and he says, And God, here's what God will do. God will generously provide all you need. And then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. You see, the fundamental nature of who God is is he's a giver. God created life he didn't have to. God gave us uh, a body and personalities and giftedness. He didn't have to. God gave us his son, Jesus, to reconcile us back to him. He didn't have to. God continues to generously give us grace when we fall and when we mess up. He doesn't have to. Therefore, it only makes sense that if we are a resident of his kingdom through his son, Jesus Christ, that generosity would flow in and out of our lives as well. So here's the question. Why doesn't it? Why doesn't generosity flow? And what are some of the things that block generosity from flowing through my life? Well, what I want to do today in the remainder of our time is I just want to uh, give you a few myths that I have bought into uh, throughout my life that have actually blocked the flow of generosity in my life. And then I want to offer a few counters to those myths so that we can dislodge those blockages and let generosity flow. So if you're taking notes, here's myth number one. It's all mine. Have you, any of you ever fallen into that one? It's like when it comes to resources and when it comes to possessions and money, we say, well, I earned it. You know, I made it. I own it. It's my name on the paycheck. And therefore, this myth kind of leads you and me to believe that everything placed into our hands is for our own consumption. 
And if we start to look at our stuff like that, not only will it begin to block the flow of generosity in our lives, but we will most likely become very impulsive spenders. Because our appetites are always screaming at us. Man, you got to have that. And you got to experience this. And if you don't, then you'll be less than. You won't measure up. And so we're always chasing after the next purchase that will give us a little dopamine hit and give us a fix to help us feel meaningful and live purposeful lives. Here's, that's a myth. Here's the counter to that myth is that it's all God's. It's all God's. Some of you aren't ready to believe that yet. Some of you are not quite sure you're there yet. That's fine. But I want you to know that this simple little truth has dramatically changed my perspective on my stuff. How many of you across all of our campuses have teenage drivers at home? Any of you have a teenage driver at home? Just raise up your hands, all campuses. Look around the room. Let's just have a moment of prayer for you right now. Because I know you need it. Uh, we, we've actually got a teenage driver at home and he's doing great. Like he's a great responsible driver. But about a year and a half ago, we um, bought him a car. Actually, I need to clarify this. Uh, we bought a car that we let him drive. Because uh, my name's on the title. And I pay the gas and I pay the insurance and I pay the repairs. And he possesses the car most of the time. It's his source of transportation. He has responsibilities for it. He needs to keep it up. He needs to maintain it, keep it clean. But, but, but I own it. I, I can take it over or I can take it back whenever I want. Because I maintain the rights of ownership. He's just managing it. And you know what? In the exact same way, all my stuff belongs to my dad, my heavenly dad. And I might possess a few things for a little while, but I don't own anything. And eventually it's all going to go back to him. He, owns the, he holds the title to all of it. In Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God owns it. I just manage it. And I'm not even talking about my checkbook. I'm talking about like even my body. Like I don't own this body. I didn't have a say in how it was made or what it looks like. And, and it's, it's, it's slowly wearing out. And eventually one day I'll turn it back into him because I don't own it. I possess it for a little while. And I, all the relationships that God has blessed me with, my wife, my kids, the, the house that we live in, the, the few possessions that we have, like I don't own any of that stuff. I'm just responsible for it. I'm just managing it. God owns it. In fact, sort of like King David, whenever uh, the nation of Israel gave generously to build Solomon's temple, David said this in, in 1 Chronicles 29. He goes, man, who am I and who, are, uh, and who are my people that we could give anything to you, God? Everything we have has come from you and you give only and we give only what you first gave us. And I got to tell you, I, I love the generous spirit of our church, the way that people are helped in our city and all over the world through you. People who have been forgotten, they find healing. People who have felt hopeless, they, they found hope. The way that you all set the table for the generations coming up behind us, man, it is inspiring to watch all of you paint a picture of what life in the generous kingdom of God is like. And I just want you to know right now that um, in the 12 years that I've been here, I have never been more excited about where we are as a church and where God is leading us as a church. There's just some really, really exciting things ahead of us. And every now and then I'll have somebody come up to me and they'll say, hey, what's the vision for our church? 
And I don't know how many of you have been in church for a while. Maybe you've heard sermons on this or you've heard church leaders talk about vision. And maybe you get a little nervous because as church leaders, we have a tendency to be kind of type A, kind of driven individuals. And so it's very, very easy to fall into this trap. And I've done it. Where we develop a vision for our church, meaning we develop some really, really cool ideas. And then we come to God and we say, hey, God, would you bless what we want to do? And I don't want to do that. I'd actually rather think about the vision for our church this way. We want to enter into a season of praying and fasting and leaning into God and then pray this. God, would you give us the vision to see what you're already doing? And then could we get in on that with you? God, could, could, would you give us the courage and would you give us the faith and would you give us the generosity just to get in on what you already are doing in our city and around the world? And so I just want you to know that over the last year, just very quietly as a staff and leadership, that's what we've been doing. We've been praying, we've been fasting, we've been leaning in like, God, what, is, what do you have for us next? And we just believe that God has through, through months and months and months of that just kind of bubbled up kind of like four primary things. We're, we actually are just calling them vision lanes they're just the lanes of what God is doing in our city and around the world. And I just want to introduce them to you today. And you'll be hearing more about it in the coming months and, and throughout 2020. Um, but, and then they will all be on the website. You can get more information about it. But I just want to introduce it to you. Vision lane number one for us is just campuses in our city. And many of you know that we are one church that meets in multiple locations. But you may not know why. And the primary reason why is because I just believe that healthy things reproduce and the New Testament church reproduced. And so for us, we just wanted to reproduce ourselves within our own city. And this started about seven years ago when we realized that we had um, hundreds and hundreds of people driving more than 20 minutes to the Northwest campus which was great, but it was actually holding some people back from getting into groups and serving and inviting friends because even though maybe they were willing to drive, their friends weren't. And we said, man, we really want you not to just come and consume a service, but we want you to be on mission. We want you to grow in your relationship. And so we decided to start a campus in the first location where we had a cluster of people driving more than 20 minutes. It happened to be uh, our north campus. We sent about 300 people there, and they started meeting in a middle school. And then a couple years later, we did it again downtown, and about 300 people started meeting in the public library downtown. And then in 2017, we sent about 350 people to our west campus in Avon, and they were meeting in a middle school school. And, and today, the North Campus and the Downtown Campus will have roughly about 1,600 people. Uh, the West Campus will have about 1,000 people that meets in a middle school. But the number that I'm really the most excited about is since we started to go multi-site, there's been about 2,600 people that have gone public in their faith in Jesus and been baptized. And it's just amazing. As we've Spread out. What happened is several thousand people have gotten into groups and they've begun to serve. And we've seen so many uh, stories of people's lives being changed and getting on mission as we've continued to reproduce. We're getting ready to launch campus number five in the Midtown Broad Ripple area as well as number six in Northeast, the Fishers area in 2020. So many exciting things uh, to share with you. I just don't have the time to do it now. You'll just have to wait. All right. Here's uh, vision lane number two is vulnerable children. And we want to make an impact for the fatherless in our city that they know that they are seen and loved. Indy is the third worst city for the number of kids that are in the foster care system. There's about 16,000 of them. 
And in 2018, we launched our foster and adoption ministry, otherwise known as FAM, and we hired a director to lead that. She's doing an amazing job. And we helped launch something called the Care Portal in the state of Indiana, which basically what it does is it's a portal that communicates all of the needs and then churches all over the state can give through this portal. Your all generosity helped contribute to that. We, we provided 40000 in funds for 15 families to adopt children internationally and domestically. We helped build a special needs resource center in Mexico with a great ministry called Back to Back. And the center is going to provide holistic care for vulnerable children all over the country of Mexico. We helped build a school in Nairobi, Kenya with Missions of Hope International. There are a thousand children in that school right now that did not have a school a few years ago. We've created care communities right here locally to come around families that have decided to foster children. And you'll be hearing more about that vision lane in the coming months as we close out this year. The third vision lane is new churches. And we just want to be involved in planting new churches in urban areas all over the world because we believe that the most effective way to reach people who are really far from God is to start new churches. And it's just proven over and over again. And we want to go to the cities because that's where the people are. And so right now we are partnering with a church plant in Paris, France, in East Germany, in Harlem, New York, Santa Barbara, California, North Hollywood, just to name a few. And we've got more projects uh, that we're uh, honing in on in the future. And then the fourth vision lane would just be leadership development. We believe that God uses humble, hungry, and healthy leaders to change the world, not just within the church, but within the marketplace, the community, and the home. And so in 2019, we launched our leadership development program to raise up new leaders in ministry. We hired our first leadership development director. He's doing an incredible job. We are working right now to partner with an accredited university to offer an on-site degree program in ministry leadership right here in our church where students will spend half their hours in class and half their hours on the field serving because we want to invest in and raise up leaders in the church, the marketplace, the community, and the home. And so we'll be sharing with you more and more updates. I just want you to know that we will move at the speed of your generosity. Like I just really don't like capital campaigns. I don't like high pressure appeals where you write a number on a card and you turn it in and you make sure that you do it. I would just rather just let, let's just let generosity flow. Let's just allow God to, let, I just want to make you aware of how we feel like God is moving. And then you just know that we always, always have more vision than we have resources. And God is up to something really, really big. And I want to do this together. Here's the second myth. Man, I'll be happier when I just have a little bit more. Just a little bit more and then I'll settle down and then I'll relax and then I'll feel content. And it, that just almost never works, at least long term. And I think we all get seduced with the myth of more. It's sort of impossible not to because of social media and, and technology. We look around and we see what other people are wearing and what they're driving and where they're living and where they're traveling like all the time. And we just somehow begin to feel that we're not enough and we become discontent with our, with our lives. And we develop this sort of scarcity mentality and we just fall into this, into this uh, false uh, idea. See, money can add some meaning to your life. But money should never be the meaning of your life. And don't get me wrong. It's not a bad thing to have money. It's not a bad thing to have ambition and success. Some of you, God has gifted you in amazing ways to be successful and to make money. That's not a big deal. Just don't put your trust in it. 
The, the most wealthy individual to ever walk the face of the planet was this guy named Solomon. He had everything. And Solomon had a journal. We actually call it the book of Ecclesiastes. And in it, he describes that he had all these real estate deals going on, that he was raking in the cash. He goes, man, I never looked at a price tag on anything. Didn't need to. I had all the money in the world. You know what his conclusion was? It was all meaningless. Like at the very end, like it, it just didn't give me what I thought it was going to. Uh, the year before last, uh, we took our family on uh, uh, fall break. We usually go to southwest Missouri. We stay in a little condo at Table Rock Lake. And, and uh, we pulled out um, the game Monopoly one night. And we sat down at the dining room table to play with our kids. Now, we have four kids. At the time, they were ages 6 to 16. And uh, we kind of, we'd, you know, laid everything out. We started going. And i got to tell you, man, the competitive side of me came out. And it ain't pretty. All right? And... Uh, and I, I want you to know, I love my family more than anything else in the world. I would give up anything for them. But that night, I drove each and every one of them relentlessly and ruthlessly off the board. All right? <laughs> and uh, I had no shame. Right? I was even like, I'd, I'd like pull out boardwalk and I'd be like, hey, hey, honey, like I, I see that you've got boardwalk there. Well, I've got St. Charles Place and you like purple, don't you? You want to trade? Right. And my my kids are like, no, don't do it. And uh, I'm really ashamed to admit this. Like, don't so don't tell anybody. But uh, I even cheated a little bit. All right. I uh, I stole a couple hundred dollar bills out of the bank, put it in my pile when they weren't looking. And and just one by one, I was just driving them off the board. And then eventually, like, I was like the, I think it was like me and my 14-year-old uh, daughter. We were like the last two. And I finally, like, pried the last bit of money out of her hands. And I'm just sitting at the table all by myself. And I got all the cash. And I got all the hotels. And I got all the houses. And I got all the railroads. And I got all the utility companies. And I'm just sitting back looking at my kingdom going, this is amazing. <laughs> and that's when my wife walked through. And she goes, way to go, honey. Why don't you go put it all back in the box? It's time for bed. It's not so different than real life, really. I mean, Solomon said this in Ecclesiastes 5. He said, those who love money, man, you'll never have enough. Like how meaningless it is to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. <laughs> Can I get a good amen? So what good is wealth? Except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers. And chasing after more and more, it's tragic for your soul and your relationships. I mean, how far do you really have to travel down that road before you see where it leads? This is why you will never see in a funeral procession a U-Haul attached to the hearse. It just doesn't happen because it all goes back in the box. Here's myth number three. I can spend tomorrow's money to find today's fulfillment. Man, I'll never forget as a, as a young man getting that letter in the mail for the very first time in bold letters on the front. It said, Aaron M. Brockett, you're approved. I've been looking for approval my whole life. And here was this company telling me that they were going to give it to me at 21% APR, but still they were going to give me approval. And I got introduced to this world of borrowing things on credit and man, I tell you what, like that's a really slippery slope. And man, managing money is complex enough as it is to add an avalanche of debt on top of that. I mean, that is a feeling of desperation that can overwhelm you and just rob you of peace and freedom. 
Proverbs 22, verse 7 says, the borrower is servant to the lender. And if you've ever been there or if you are there right now, man, you know exactly how that feels. As you know that the number one reason for divorce given in America today is financial problems. And bills mount up and you feel like you can't breathe and panic sets in and you can't sleep and you can't stop worrying and you can't be generous and you can't uh, enjoy that occasional night out because you're so buried in debt and it is an awful feeling that God never intended and he never wanted for any one of us. And if you're there right now, I just want you to know that you're not alone and that there is hope. And if you'd like to get out of debt, we want to encourage you and we want to help you. Not by coming and paying all of your bills for you, but by offering you some tools and some guidance. And for you to know that it is never too late, but you got to be proactive. Like if you're married right now and you're under a mountain of debt, you need to sit down with each other. You need to look at each other without any blame, without pointing any fingers and simply say this. Hey, we're in this together. And don't say, well, it's because you went to Nordstrom too much. No, you say, no, we're in this together. And we're actually going to climb out of it together. And you got to face the brutal facts with hope. And you've got to take ownership. You've got to ask for help. And listen, man, it's going to take a while. And it involves some very non-glamorous things like sacrifice and delayed gratification and self-control and establishing a budget and living within your means. But listen, that's the kind of lasting stuff that God wants to develop in you anyway. See, there's a whole lot of people right now. See, part of the American dream is get rich quick. There's a whole bunch of people that want to get rich quick. And so we play the lottery or we hope that that rich uncle, you know, kicks the bucket and leaves us with all of his wealth so that we get all this money. But here's the question that we never ask. Let's just say that tomorrow morning you wake up a multimillionaire for whatever reason. Here's the question we never ask. Would you be any good at it? And some of you are like, well, I don't know, but I'd like to try. Statistics say you wouldn't be very good at it. It's called the lottery effect. You can Google it. Like most people that win the lottery, their lives are ruined within a year. Why do you think that is? Well, it's because uh, God's wisdom on this says that the way to build financial wealth is little by little. Why do you think that is? It's because your character gets developed little by little. And by the time that you actually have amassed some, some financial resources, you've got the character that can handle it. You get rich quick, you won't. In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 5, it says this, Good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts, man, that always leads to poverty. So you consistently work a plan. You live within your means. You honor God by being generous. You save, you invest little by little. And what it does is it develops these priceless things within you that you can never purchase. Things like trust and faith and commitment and confidence in God's ability to sustain you. And I guarantee you the state lottery will never show up on your front door and tell you any of that. Here's myth number four, the last one. When I have more, then I'll be generous. When I have more, that's when I'll be generous. And I think a lot of us fall into this one. It's easy, it's an easy logic to sort of fall into and kind of goes like this. It's like, well, when I decide what I want to do for a living, when I get the job, when I get the promotion, when I get the raise, when I get the student loans paid off, when my uh, kids get through college, when we are financially independent, then we'll be generous. Like right now, the first part of our life, we're just saving, 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 saving. When we get to this other season, then we'll actually enter into generosity mode. And it sounds really good, but stats don't back it up. Most people in our country who make more give less. 
And then if I could just go back to the character development thing, you're missing out on how God wants to develop your character through your generosity, even when maybe things are tight. Here's the counter to that myth. When I'm generous, then I'll have more. Well, more of what? Well, the things you can't purchase. More peace, more joy, more contentment, more satisfaction, and freedom, and even entrusted with more resources. That's actually a promise that God's word gives to us over and over and over again. One time Jesus was teaching on this, and listen to what he says. He says, give and you'll receive. And your gift will actually return to you in full. And then he uses this, these interesting terms. He goes, press down, shaken together to make room for more. What in the world is he talking about? Uh, I've taken all four of my kids to the M&M store in Times Square in New York. And I've given them an empty plastic bag. And I said, go nuts. And they'll go around, they'll fill up that bag full of M&Ms till it gets full. And then what do they do? They press it down and shake it to get as many M&Ms in the bag as possible. And that's the image that Jesus uses here. He says, you know what, it'll run over and it'll be poured into your lap. And the amount you give will determine the amount that you get back. Now this isn't some sort of health and wealth prosperity gospel. This is just a good, good promise from a good, good father who wants you to be free from the anxiety and worry over resources. Man, the kingdom of God is just countercultural. So this was my logic for a long time. This was my financial plan that I ran as a young adult, is that when I got a paycheck, I would live off of what I received, and then I would save a little bit, and then I would give whatever was left over. That's a whole lot of me first living and leftover giving. But this, after like a year or so of our marriage, Lindsay and I decided to, to do this the Modnik way. And so we decided when we would get a paycheck that we would give first and then we would save and then we would live off the rest, which means that we had to establish a budget and live within our means. That's just good wisdom. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part, the best part, not the leftovers, of everything that you produce. And then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine. See, there, very generally, there are two different types of, of generosity. There's spontaneous generosity. And what I mean by that is that you, a need pops up. Like, you know, there's a hurricane in the Gulf. There's wildfires in the West. There's somebody with a cardboard sign at the corner. You see a need in front of you and you're just going to give whatever you have to help. And that's a good thing. But transformational generosity is this next one. It's premeditated. And premeditated generosity says this. I'm going to decide ahead of time a percentage of my income that I'll be generous with. Now, here's the key. Before my circumstances talk me out of it. And they always will. And the Bible has a word for premeditated generosity that as, as Christ followers, uh, we oftentimes have an emotional reaction to this for a number of reasons. But it's just simply called a tithe. We get all bent out of shape over that. Like, well, we're, that was under the law and we're under grace and God doesn't want us to do that anymore. And do we need to tithe off the gross or do we tithe off the net? And all the other hula hoops that we try to jump through to try to weasel out of this one. But a tithe just simply means this. It's premeditated and it's proportionate. Really, at the end of the day, that's what God's after. And, and God does throw out this number of 10%. I do believe that's the starting place. I think that's what God wants for us to do. Not in any legalistic way, but um, you might ask, well, why? Like, why, why 10%? And I've thought about that a ton over the years, and there's a number of things that I could say to you, but I really would want to boil it down to two things. Number one, 10% of your income, 10% of my income is enough to get your attention, but it's not enough to ruin you. 
It's enough to make you rearrange some things. It's enough to make you live according to a budget. It's enough to hurt a little bit, but it's not enough to put you out on the streets. It's enough to be transformational. But here's the second thing. Uh, Numbers were a big deal in the Bible. Numbers always meant something. So, for example, seven is the number represented for God. It's the number of perfection. Some of you knew that. Uh, The number six is Satan's number, 666. It's one less than seven. The number 10 is almost always used in God's word uh, to coincide with testing. So, for example, uh, when God tested his people's obedience, how many commandments did he give them? Yeah, the answer is 10. He gave them 10 commandments. Uh, When God was testing Pharaoh, how many plagues did he send Pharaoh? 10. In the New Testament, uh, how many virgin brides were tested to see if they were prepared for the bridegroom? 10. How, How many lepers did Jesus heal, wondering if they would come back to say thank you? Once again, 10. How many disciples did Jesus have? We had 12. I'm just testing you. All right, I just... Wanted to see if you were with me, all right? (laughs) Ten seems to be a picture of testing. And so when God says, would you just return a tithe to me? It's not because he needs your cash to pay his bills. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He says, no, 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 would you just test me in this? Would you trust me in this? I'm a good, good father. I want more for you. And it's so difficult at times to do that. I remember uh, years ago when my kids were really little, uh, I took them to Chick-fil-A, and I didn't order any waffle fries because I thought they would give me some of theirs. <laughs> Hope, wishful thinking there. And uh, so, you know, we sit down in the booth, and I just said, hey, guys, can I have a couple of your fries? And they were like, no, Daddy, these are ours. You selfish little me monsters, all right? It's like, do you know where those waffle fries came from? Like, do you know that I, your father, am lord of the waffle fries, really, and that that I can see to it that you never see a waffle fry again until your 18th birthday. Or I can open up both lanes of the Chick-fil-A drive-thru and I can pour on you so many waffle fries that you won't even know what to do with it because I am the Lord of the waffle fries. You need to return a percentage of the waffle fries back unto thee, all right? Still didn't work, but I gave it a good effort. Hey, can I tell you that you just can't outgive God. And God says, try it. Test me. Just see. There have been times, plenty of times in my life where I've had buyer's remorse. That's a sickening feeling. You got all wrapped up. You, you made an emotional purchase and you pulled that brand new car off the lot and it immediately depreciated in value and you love that new car smell until the very next day when your kid pukes in it. And then after three months of payments and you see that your bill is hardly going down, you're like, oh, my goodness, I shouldn't have bought it. Buyer's remorse. I have never, ever had giver's remorse. And some of you are missing out on an element of something that God wants to do in your spiritual and financial life because you just haven't yet trusted him in this area. Or you did, but you got away from it. Can I just ask you today to test God in this. You don't need to tell me. I I won't even know. It's between you and God. You decide in your heart. But maybe some of you right now, it's the last thing you're holding on to with the death grip. It's the last thing you're trying to control. And God says, just test me in this. And I just want to challenge you over the next three months, just try it. See what he might do. 
And when you honor God with the first part, what you're doing is you're inviting him into your financial world. And I'm telling you this, he will engage himself supernaturally in your financial affairs. He just will. And when you don't, God simply says this. Well, you're robbing me. And you might be like, God, how in the world am I robbing you? And he goes, well, you're robbing me of a chance to be involved with you in your finances. You're robbing me of an opportunity to reassure you you're not alone. You're robbing me of an opportunity to provide for you and to show you that I really care. A chance to demonstrate my love and faithfulness to you, to fill you up with peace and contentment, an opportunity to touch somebody else's life through your generosity. And we've learned that generosity will not happen until you make it a priority. It doesn't happen until you decide, this is who I want to be. I've been saved by grace and I'm going to let generosity flow through my life. I'm going to be seen as the kind of person that is a resident of the modnik kingdom of God and generosity just flowed. How could I not after all that God has done for me? And out of all of the voices that are screaming at you right now, telling you that you are not enough and then you won't be enough and that you won't make enough, there is a still small voice that cuts through all the lies and all the noise and all the pressure. And he reassures you that you are priceless, that you are chosen, that you are accepted, that you are unique, and you are lavishly loved. And man, God's got this. And he just simply says, invite me into it. Invite me into it. And when you know that you are lavishly loved, that is a game changer in the way that you live your life and in the way you think about your stuff. Father, we come to you right now and we just want to take a few moments to just quiet ourselves down and come before you and ask you to do a transformational work within us. God, maybe there's some people here that are just suffocating in debt and it is just literally and physically making them sick. God, I pray that you begin to give them a little bit of hope. Give them some tools and a path to help them to see the light out of that tunnel. God, maybe there's somebody here today and they've just been wrapped up in building their kingdom here on earth. It's not a bad thing that they're successful. It's not a bad thing that they're good at what they do. But God, I pray that they would begin to, to have a vision for what you want to do through them in this world. God, I pray that if there's somebody that's just been very individualistic, just kind of seeing our church as a place that they go to get something, to kind of get a sort of spiritual needs and services on the weekend, that they would begin to say, you know what? No, 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 I'm actually part of a family. I'm part of a movement of God in and through this particular local church. And God, we know that we can't do it on our own, that there's other churches in the city, and we need every single church that is chasing after Jesus to be at their absolute best and to reach as many people as possible if we're going to make a dent. But God, you've placed us in this church. And so we want to come together and link arms and say, God, in our lifetime, would you do something so big and so outrageous that the only way that we could explain it is your grace. So meet us in this room right now and work on us Give us the grace we need to have the courage and the faith to trust you in this area of our lives because it's so deeply personal and even painful. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.